Good morning, Alaska, and welcome to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. Throughout history, unimaginable atrocities have been perpetuated by humans on other humans. How is it possible with our incredible ability to reason and our huge capacity for compassion and love that our history is littered with examples of one group of people trying to exterminate another through rape, slaughter, torture, and the mutilation of innocent men, women, and children? My guest today argues that it is against human nature for a person to look at a crying baby, a young child frozen with fear, or a young woman begging for mercy and decide to shoot them, set them on fire, or rape them. Why then is human history filled with these events, and how can it still be happening today? The answer is that in order for this to happen, the perpetrator must come to believe that their victims are not fully human and are somehow monstrous evil beings worthy of extermination. This, my guest says, is the uncanny power of dehumanization. On today's program, I am joined by philosophy professor and author David Livingstone Smith. Dr. Livingstone Smith has researched and written extensively on the subjects of war, human cruelty, and genocide, and was a guest at the G20 Economic Summit in 2012, where he spoke about the dehumanization and mass violence. Um, occurring in our world today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Livingstone Smith. I appreciate you taking the time to join us again today. Thank you, Prentice, and please call me David. Okay, uh, permission uh, accepted. Um, we have uh, done a couple of these before, two or maybe even three, maybe two, I don't remember. It's been a while though. Uh, 2018, I think, was the last time we talked, and time is just sort of blazing by. Um, so I'm excited to have you back and to talk about sort of uh, your new book, uh, Making Monsters, the Uncanny Power of Dehumanization, and uh, kind of get your latest views. It seems like they've been updated a little bit and you've put some more energy into it. But before we get going on that, I want to remind uh, our listeners that we are a call-in show and we would love to hear from you. In Anchorage, you can call us uh, on our local number, 907-550-8433. That's 907-550-8433. You can also, also reach us from anywhere you might be listening, toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. You can email your questions to line1 at alaskapublic.org. you got to spell out line1. L-I-N-E-O-N-E. -E. Um, all right. So can you uh, start us off today by maybe giving listeners who might not be familiar with your work or have missed uh, some of our earlier shows, like what you do, what you're about, and why you have chosen this um, interesting but sort of very difficult uh topic or, or subject to study is sort of your life's work. Yeah, so um, I'm a professor of philosophy, as you said in the introduction, at the University of New England in, in Maine. And what I do in, when I'm at work is I teach philosophy. Um, but when I'm at home, I write and research. Now, why have I chosen dehumanization? Well, there are a couple of answers to that question. One, 
has to do with who I am and where I came from as a person. I grew up in the deep south. Uh, my family moved down to South Florida in the 50s when it was really deep south. It was the Jim Crow era. And I grew up in an extended family with my maternal grandparents who were Jewish refugees from Eastern Europe. So I learned about anti-Semitism from them. And I could see right in front of me this raw, raw brutality directed against African-Americans in the little town where I grew up. And those two influences left a deep mark on me, which later on when I became an academic, uh, turned into a research project. How do we understand the persecution of Jews and the persecution of African-Americans and the persecution of many, many other people? What goes on in people's heads and what goes on politically to make these atrocities possible? So that's one half of the story. The other half of the story is back around 2006, when I was working on a book on war, I came across lots of dehumanizing propaganda, wartime propaganda, enemies described as vicious predators or game animals to be shot for fun. And I thought this is really interesting. Uh, let's look into it further. And I found that there wasn't a whole lot of literature on it. Almost all of it was by social psychologists. And I had some problems with the way they approached the topic. So I thought, wow, this is a really important subject. Let's get into it. And that led to my first book on dehumanization. You know, it's one of 10 books I've done. And that book was called Less Than Human, Why We Demean, Enslave, and Exterminate Others, published in 2011. And, uh, and then, you know, over the course of years, I, I refined my views. I was responsive to objections to my position. And I modified my, my view of how dehumanization works and what it is. And that led in 2020 to my book on inhumanity, dehumanization and how to resist it. And most recently in 2021, making monsters the uncanny power of dehumanization. So this is a project I've been working on for 15 years and I imagine I'll be working on for the rest of my life. Yeah, it's sort of evolved for you. And um, I have read all three books and they are, uh, they're heavy reads. There is um, lots of quotes and stories from uh, both people who have uh, like committed the atrocities, and um, and those are powerful uh, stories. And it's it's hard to read um, some of the stories, especially about the lynchings that you talk about and uh, the celebration that that was created like a festival sort of atmosphere uh, and just how how the the crowd got fomented and you know worked up um and just cheering and leering and uh, it it's stuff that people cannot imagine themselves ever participating in any one of us would say oh no that could never happen to me but um you know i mean i don't want to give Trump any credit when he says there's many fine people, but like 
on both sides. But the reality is like the there was reasonable people in Nazi Germany who were committing these atrocities that were uh, family people, loved their children, loved their families, and somehow, and you know the the lynchings. These were church going like. Yeah. By all accounts, good people who participated in things that are so abhorrent that we, you know, I stumbled to try to find words that do it justice. Um, so how, like, for the purposes of today's conversation, what is dehumanization? And and we will get more into, like, how that is possible to happen. But how do you define dehumanization? Because it be, can be used in many contexts. I'll define it in a second, but I want to point out to the listeners that the point you just raised is very, very important. So it's it's really tempting to think of people who commit these just unbelievable atrocities. I mean, we're familiar, somewhat familiar with, with what went on in Nazi Germany, less familiar with the atrocities that were committed in our own country. Yeah. And we're inclined to think, oh, these are monsters. These are deranged people, but they're not. They're ordinary people. And you see, the reason why that's important is it shows us that if we're subjected to the right sorts of influences, all of us are capable of engaging in these, these acts or very least, you know, tolerating them. Mm -hmm. So... So, you know, it, it's a matter of, uh, of kind of hygiene, really. <laughs> it's a matter of if we don't recognize, and this is why I describe these things so graphically, you see, I think it's very important not to whitewash it. If we don't recognize what the stakes are, then we are much more inclined to slip into the ways of thinking that result in atrocity. So what's dehumanization? The word is used in lots of different ways. Um, and it's not that some of them are right and some of them are wrong. It's that we need to choose one or the other of these understandings of dehumanization if we want to theorize it, if we want to explain it. So on my account, dehumanization is an attitude. It's the attitude of conceiving of others as less than human creatures. So dehumanization happens in people's heads, but it can't be explained completely in terms of psychology because we have to look at what people's heads are in. We have to look at the social and political environment, the forces bearing down on people in order to understand dehumanization. It's... Uh... It's deep psychology, and you know it's it's hard. It was hard to go back to your earlier point for me to even say, well, these were otherwise good people who, you know, I think of the Rwanda uh, situation and, and that you describe in your book. These were neighbors of each other. These were friends, longtime family friends that then turned um, and slaughtered each other, and it was. Yep. And it just doesn't make any sense. So, yes, your point is, like, it's not that the perpetrators— I mean, I think of Vietnam. I think of veterans that I've worked with who have done things that um, that 
terrorize them in their sleep, right? Uh, 40 years later, you know, it's, and because of this energy that was created about, you know, gooks and, you know, all these terms that were pro- this propaganda and like making it easier to kill. Um, yeah. And that they were somehow less than human. And that's, um, it's just really, really powerful and complicated, but it's important, like you said, for us to really understand that we are not above it uh, individually mm. or as a, as a country. And um, there, it's not too distant, uh, you know, in the, in the past where we have done these things. I mean, they're talking the 1940s, the 1930s when these lynchings and, and even in the 50s and 60s, like that's, it's in, you know, my own family history participated, you know, in a killing and um, in the deep South. Right. And mm. it's, it's powerful stuff. And I think it's important for people to read these books and to educate themselves and to understand what they see when they see it and hear it. And it's, it's so important um, that people in whatever group or whatever nation understand that they have blood on their hands. And it's important because it, it gives us a sense of humility if we accept that, so most Americans don't understand lynching. They, they see the whitewashed versions mm-hmm. on TV and in the movies. They just don't understand how utterly, unbelievably cruel and horrific it was. But if you can embrace that, if you can understand it, if you can accept it, then you must understand that we could do it again. And maybe even we're doing something like that now without realizing. Right. And that attitude is really crucial carrying forward to the future, right? To, to as, as one little piece of what might be some prophylaxis against terrible atrocities recurring. Right. And there is, I mean, there is language today that um, reminds me of some of that when we're talking about the immigration on the southern border and you know like and and acknowledging it brought me to a point acknowledging our our participation in these events as a country and as a people is not i mean it it gets passed off by certain um certain parts of our political system as oh you hate america um you want to tear down and live in shame of what we've done that's not it at all it is just an acknowledgement and an understanding, and then how do we be better and make sure it never happens again? Um, exactly, exactly. Um, it's it's not tearing down the nation. It's it's it is trying to puncture some illusions that we have about ourselves, and that's all for the good. Because if we don't acknowledge these things, we just can't be better. Yeah, and it's not about teaching our children that America is evil. Right. <laughs> and that just because we these things happened, it's like how do we how do we insulate ourselves from and, and really be above that? Because as I said, it's we're not a very old country and there's been a lot of things done in to in, through racism um and just the dehumanizing of of humans in our own culture. So 
I have a uh, a couple of questions here. One uh, emails. One is dehumanizing. Isn't it all about fear? Is the question, um, and that is a component of it. Um, how does fear play a role in? It's, it's a very very important component. So people tend to talk about it in terms of hate, and I think that's rather superficial. So. To, to understand the role of fear, we have to understand that the dehumanizing attitude doesn't arise spontaneously in the human mind. People don't wake up in the morning and think, oh, those people over there, they're, they're subhumans, they're dangerous subhumans. People in positions of power and influence get us to think that way. Um, and they, they, their propaganda operates against something more basic in us, which is our recognition that other members of our species are human like us. Now, one way they do that is to inculcate fear. So these others, these dehumanized others, at least in the most toxic, the most dangerous forms of dehumanization are presented as evil, destructive, criminal, bad to the bone, rapists, murderers. And of course, if people can get you to believe that, that these others are in, in effect demonic, monstrous beings, then you're gonna to wanna to protect yourself. And you're gonna to wanna to protect yourself by pushing back, by fighting back against them. It's a sad fact that Every genocide that I've studied, and I've studied quite a few that took place over the last 150 years, those who perpetrated the genocide thought of themselves as saving the world from evil. As doing a good. Doing something good, doing what they were morally obliged to do. The Nazis thought that. The, the, the uh, militant Hutus thought that. Uh, the Turks thought that in the Armenian genocide. It's, it's just classic. There's, so the, the persecutors typically really do believe that they are doing something righteous. They're saving the world. It's a moral obligation. And that, that's the power of it, right? It's, yeah. That's where the power comes in is like you, it's, you're called to do this thing. And mm -hmm. these are these subhuman creatures are somehow going to rape our women and and you know infect our blood, Kill our children. Um, yes, yeah, the works. Yeah, the whole works. So, all right, that the othering of people. Um, th there's so many ways to go with this conversation um, from here, and we could probably talk for hours, but. I do want to um, be aware of the time and, and our first break, we're up against that. So we will, we will come back in just a few minutes. So for anyone who might be tuning in late, my guest today is Dr. David Livingstone Smith, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of New England and the author of several books on the topic of war, genocide, dehumanization, and human cruelty. Today we are discussing his new book, Making Monsters, The Uncanny Power of Dehumanization. After this short break, I'll let you know how you can get in touch with us with your questions or comments, and we will continue our conversation 
with Dr. David Livingstone-Smith. I'm Prentice Pemberton, and you are listening to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. Line One, your health connection comes to you from Alaska Public Media and is made possible with support from Princess Lodges, offering glass-domed railcar tours to Talkeetna and Denali National Park for Alaska summer adventures. Your journey begins at princesslodges.com. The Alaska State Library Talking Book Center has audiobooks and more for children and adults who are unable to read standard print. Learn more at talkingbooks.alaska.gov. This message sponsored by the Alaska Library Network. Welcome back to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm Prentice Pemberton, your host for today's show. For those of you who are just tuning in, my guest is philosophy professor and author Dr. David Livingstone Smith, who has authored several books on the topic of war, genocide, dehumanization, and human cruelty. Today we are talking about his new book, Making Monsters, the Uncanny Power of Dehumanization. As always, we welcome your questions or comments, so please don't hesitate to call in uh, and share them with us. You can email your questions to line1 at alaskapublic.org. You can call us in the Anchorage area at 907-550-8433, or you can reach us toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. Okay, our uh, it's kind of weird, David, because I'm looking at you on Zoom and you can't see me, and I keep, you know, looking, and <laughs> we need to get a camera in here somehow. Um, so, but it is nice to see your face, and uh, it's, we haven't had a lot of studio guests, and so it's always nice to be able to look at people. And I'm sorry you're uh, not able to see my shining face today. Um, next time. Next time, yes. All right. Uh, before we get into more of this, I want to go ahead and uh, take a phone call. Bethany in Fairbanks, uh, you're on line one. Go ahead. Hey. Hey, everybody. Hi, David. I just wanted Hi. to make a comment about, um, and I totally um, understand this man's inhumanity and cruelty to men. And uh, as a triracial person, I grew up with all kinds of bizarre uh, seeing and witnessing all kinds of bizarre human behavior. But I really think that um, it's a reflection of how we treat not only ourselves, but the natural world and all life on the planet, our dogs, our cats, our wildlife, are polluting our, our environment. It's all connected. And until we can address that as a species and come to some kind of respect, for the other life forms on our planet, we're just going to continue to treat the planet and ourselves in this manner, the worst of us anyway. A lot of us don't, but we're going to continue. And um, I like to see man's inhumanity to man and to other forms of life stop and to see us rise above that. Thank you so much. 
Thank you, Bethany. I appreciate the call and the comment. And that's a great call because it leads into one of the fundamental points um, or a big point in, in David's book that about, can you talk about the great chain of being? And that's what or, Bethany's talking about, if I'm not mistaken. No, no, she is. She's, she's right on the money there. Thank you, Bethany. So if you think about the idea of subhumanity, when we dehumanize others, we think of them as less than human. That implies a hierarchy. It implies the idea that they are higher, more worthy, more intrinsically valuable kinds of beings, and then there are lower ones. Now, that's not a scientific notion, right? In fact, way back in 1859, Charles Darwin taught us that that's not how the universe is, is organized. It, it's not like higher and lower. Everything that's alive does what it does really, really well. That's why it's alive. Um, but for thousands of years, and in many places in the world, people have thought in terms of a hierarchy. And of course, we human beings modestly placed ourselves near the top. And we tended to think of other living things, animals and plants and fungi, etc., as lower down. And it's that way of thinking that makes dehumanization possible. That's not all there is to dehumanization, but it's a very, very important component. But it's also important to understand why that's happened. And it's not the case, by the way, in, um, in many so-called indigenous cultures. Right. Uh, now I'll get back to that in just a second, but why is this hierarchical way of thinking there? Well, we human beings are confronted with a problem. And it's a problem which confronts all animals or virtually all animals. But of course, not other animals don't worry about it like we do. And that's what I call the problem of killing. Life feeds on life. And in order to survive and to flourish, we and, and other animals need to kill and dismember other living things. And for, for us, that's kind of a problem because we have to decide what kind of living things under what circumstances are killable. And I think that this hierarchical way of looking at things, which is wreaking such havoc on the world, is, a, is a, an attempted solution to that problem. We can kill those organisms that are beneath us hmm. in the hierarchy. Um, so in order to, to cease in, in these sort of very destructive attitudes running rampant on, on this planet, we have to find some other solution to deal with the problem of killing. And listening to, I mean, it strikes me that the ones who placed the value on humans being at the top were humans. I mean, if if a cheetah yes, could think, right. if a cheetah could think logically and rationally about what's the highest level of of animal, they would say the cheetah. I would imagine, and it's mm -hmm. it's interesting. And the people with the most guns seem to like have created this hierarchy um, and the power and 
the othering. And if we are the top, then everything else is therefore beneath us and there to serve us or for our purposes, we can use it as we see fit. Yeah, and we, we find that, for instance, in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament, that, you know, the, the, the rest of nature is, is for okay, uh, so that, the domination of human beings. That takes me into um, another really important principle in your book that or something that lays the foundation and it sort of, I don't know, branches off of that is this idea of ideologies. Um, okay. Where did, I mean... Can you talk a little bit about ideologies, what that means in the context of what we're talking about and why it's so dangerous? Yeah. So ideology is one of those concepts that's all over the map. People use the word in really, really different ways. Some people think of ideology as just a sort of a worldview. Uh, others think of it as a system of beliefs, so on. So there are many, many notions of ideology, just like dehumanization. There are many, many notions of dehumanization. So if you're talking about ideology, it's really, really important to specify what you mean. So what I mean by, by ideology, and this is one thread in, in the scholarship about ideology, is ideologies are systems of belief and practices associated with those beliefs that have the function the purpose of promoting oppression. And by oppression, I mean um, disadvantaging some groups to the advantage of others. So dehumanization is a, an example of ideology. That is the purpose of dehumanization, as I understand it, is to facilitate violence and oppression by one group of another group. Uh, your previous caller mentioned in passing that she's tri-racial. Mm -hmm. Well, race is a great example of an ideology. You know, ideas about race were invented historically for the purpose of oppressing people. Um, and it's, it's one of the supreme tragedies of history that that we've maintained these ideas. Um, you know, West Africans say 700 years ago, there's no reason to think that they thought of themselves as members of homogenous race. They, they thought of themselves in terms of their ethnic roots as Igbo or Akan or Wolof or, or a Fulani or whatever. It's when the slave traders came in the first the Arabs from the north and then Europeans from the west, uh, that these very diverse peoples were homogenized as belonging to a, a single race. And that's the tragic history of it. And why, why did that happen? Because there were people who wanted to enslave other people. And it, what made it a lot easier was to think of these other people as fundamentally different and inferior. Yeah, and while we're talking about race, I just want to touch briefly um, on this idea. I want to go back to, it. I have an email from uh, one of our listeners that says um, they just don't understand the whole Whoopi Goldberg thing. 
Um, and the question is, why is Judaism considered to be a race and not a religion? Well, that's a very complex question, really. So there are lots of Jewish people, myself included, who are atheists and who don't practice the Jewish religion. Now, what we call Jews consists of several different ethnic groups with a little bit in common. So normally when Europeans and Americans think of, of Jews, they think of Ashkenazi Jews. And those are the, the Jews of Europe, of Northern Europe and Eastern Europe. Jews were racialized. That is, they were thought of as members of a different and inferior race oh, at least as far back as the 13th or 14th century. There was ideological groundwork that prepared that. So you have to understand that when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire, other religious minorities were exterminated in Europe. They were forcibly converted or they were killed. Jews were allowed to live because of the special connection between, historical connection between Judaism and Christianity. Uh, but St. Augustine, the medieval philosopher and Catholic saint, stipulated that Jews were allowed to live and practice their ways, their customs, albeit in a condition of oppression and misery. And this was why did he suggest that? Well, it was good propaganda for converting the pagans. So there was anti-Jewish feeling in Christianity from early on. And eventually that turned into thinking of Jewish people, not simply of murderers of, of Christ, but as an evil demonic race. And once that got established, we can trace the continuity of that right up to the Holocaust and beyond. Right. In fact, I have a whole chapter in the book on this. Yeah, you do. And in that chapter, there was some really interesting discussion about how Nazi Germany, how they identified or characterized uh, the Jewish people, who was uh, Jewish and who was not. And um if you can talk, but it was really interesting, the descriptions of of the blonde, blue-eyed Jewish folks who still were Jewish based on blood. And yeah. um, can you talk a little bit about that categoriz categorization and how it's not really about, I mean, you think of race as sort of color or skin, yeah. um, but it didn't have much to do with that. No, no, that's a very American thing because right. of historical contingencies. So Americans think of race as skin color, but that wasn't even the case in the United States for much of our history. So for instance, Irish people were seen as, as a separate and inferior race 150 years ago mm -hmm. in this country, um, as were Slavic people, as were Italians, as were Jewish people. So... The backstory here is very, very important. When the Nazis were getting their anti-Semitism together, they looked around the world, like who were the most racist people in the world that they could 
get inspiration from. Now, Hitler had already given a, uh, a clue to this. In Mein Kampf, he expresses great admiration for the United States. He expresses great admiration for our genocide of Native Americans and for our very restrictive immigration laws that were put into effect in the 1920s, uh, which were racially motivated. So the Nazis sent a bunch of lawyers over to the United States because the United States was, and this is no exaggeration, the world leader in racism in the 1920s. And they studied our Jim Crow laws. And then they went back to Germany and modeled the Nuremberg laws on the American Jim Crow laws, except they toned it down a little bit because they thought the Amer American racism was too extreme. It was a little harsh. That's, yeah, a little harsh. So the Americans had the one drop rule. If you had one non-white ancestor, you were not white. The Germans chose to understand Jews. You were fully Jewish if you had three Jewish grandparents. If you had only two, you were a, uh, a Mischling, which translates as a mongrel. I would be a Mischling. Mm -hmm. um, and so they didn't care what religion you practice. If you are a convert to Christianity and you had blue eyes and blonde hair, as my Jewish grandmother did, that didn't matter a bit. You could end up in the ovens of Treblinka. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a powerful chapter. I remember even like stories of the doctor who um, saved the, the Nazi soldier by a blood transfusion, but then he was tainted, right? Because it was believed that the essence of this evil mm -hmm. was carried in the blood. Yes, that's right. So this is very important. One of the most common notions about race and dehumanization, and those two things are very, very closely tied, you know, Racism, I described it in a previous book, dehumanization as racism on steroids. Mm -hmm. It's so closely tied to race, right? So the idea then is race is somehow in the blood. And if you are regarded as a racialized subhuman, if you're dehumanized, that's in the blood as well. So, you know, if, if your parents are, are subhumans, you're a subhuman too. And this is very often understood quite literally. Literally, I mean, people talk about full-blooded this and the, yep. the blood quantum and the bloodline and so on. Of course, scientifically, this is absolute nonsense. But Nazis and others took this quite literally. So this man, Dr. S I believe his name was Serelmans, a, a, a Nazi stormtrooper, was in a, an automobile accident. And he was rushed to hospital. He needed a transfusion. The Jewish doctor was the right blood type. He gave blood to this man. And then they were both accused of violating the Nazi race laws, laws against the mixing of blood. It was called Rassenschande, uh, race defilement. So that's how literally they took it. Race defilement. All right. Um, I have a, uh, a email here. Um, it's just sort of a, it's not really a question or, but it's, it's kind of a, I don't know, a, a meme-ish sort of uh, email that is just a statement that says, what if microbes run our world and they want blood on the ground? 
Right? It's sort of like, um, yeah, why are we the ones who run the world? How do we know that? It may be these quote unquote lower forms that are really have this master plan. Um, well, if it weren't for bacteria, we wouldn't exist. Right? There wouldn't be Our a world, right? So in a sense, yeah, bacteria are the most successful organisms everywhere. You know, we are latecomers to the scene. And if we didn't have these bacteria in our guts and on our bodies, we, we could not survive. And we are not the most important. <clears throat> no, no, bacteria are way more important. And we are perhaps the most destructive. Um, well, not mm -hmm. perhaps. I mean, clearly, uh, we don't really fit very well with the rest of it. Um, That's right. Kind of an outlier. All right. Uh, we are at our second break. So if you're just tuning in, my guest today is philosophy professor David Livingstone Smith. He is the author of several books on the topics of war, genocide, dehumanization, and human cruelty. Today, we are discussing his new book, Making Monsters, The Uncanny Power of Dehumanization. If you have a question or a comment for us today, please feel free to, to reach out. You can call us in Anchorage uh, at 907-550-8433. You can reach us toll-free from anywhere else you might be listening at 1-888-353-5752. And you can email us your questions to line1 at alaskapublic.org. After a short break, we'll return to our discussion with Dr. David Livingstone Smith. I'm Prentice Pemberton, and you're listening to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Parents, did you know that one out of four Alaska high school students currently use e-cigarettes? E-cigarettes are easy to use and easy to hide. What teens breathe in and out from e-cigarettes is not safe. It contains cancer-causing chemicals, toxic metals, and nicotine. Nicotine can lead to addiction. It can harm brain development and hurt memory, learning, and attention span. Parents, talk to your teens about vaping. Visit livevapefree at alaskaquitline.com. This message sponsored by the Alaska Tobacco Quitline. Welcome back. You're listening to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Prentice Pemberton. If you're just joining us, my guest today is Dr. David Livingstone Smith. He is the author of several books on the topic of war, genocide, dehumanization, and human cruelty. Today, we are discussing his new book, Making Monsters, The Uncanny Power of Dehumanization. If you have a question or a comment for us today, please go ahead and email us or give us a call over the next 10 minutes uh, so we can get your call on the air. Uh, I do have quite a few emails lining up here and one caller I'd like to get to. Um, so call in quickly and, and hopefully we'll have time to get that on the air. You can email us at line one at alaskapublic.org. You can call us in Anchorage at 907 550-8433, or you can reach us toll-free at 1-888-353-5752. Before we get into more of our conversation, I'm going to go ahead and uh, take a call. I've been waiting for a few minutes. Uh, David, you're on line one. You have a question for David? 
Um, well, it may not be so much a question, but um, sort of something to contribute to the, the discussion. Um, when I was in philosophy, one of my professors, uh, Richard Popkin, was talking about um, a theory where he felt that race was identified with the, with blood and things of that sort because, um, you know, centuries ago, everything was considered uh, as far as what is your essence. But when you got to the empiricists, and especially Locke, they got rid of the idea of essence as something that you do not know, and color, a secondary quality, became more important. And that's when race started to become, or color, became uh, the identifier for race. All right. Thank you so much, David, for that uh, question and for bringing up the word essence. Um, I <laughs> think that's, that's important. Do you have a, a comment? Dr. Smith? Sure. Um, well, um, essences didn't go away. <laughs> and of course, Locke, John Locke, made a distinction between what he calls the nominal essence, which is basically like a definition, and the real essence, that is what it is that makes a thing the kind of thing that it is. And he thought that the real essences were, were not knowable, but they, they must be there. But, you know, we can look at the ideas of philosophers and other thinkers, and we can look at how human psychology works. And there's a robust um, mini industry in psychology looking about just how prevalent essentialistic thinking is in human beings. And this is crucial, by the way, for understanding both racial thinking and dehumanization. Because the idea is with essentialism in the sense that psychologists um, consider it, that what makes something the kind of thing that it is, is not how it looks. The way it looks may give you some kind of clues, but what makes something the kind of thing that it is, is something unobservable on the inside, the essence. So we see that in, in, in racial thinking a lot. Um, so uh, for instance, let me give an historical example, uh, Homer Plessy, Plessy versus Ferguson, a famous case. Yeah. Well, Homer Plessy was considered black, but he was visually indistinguishable from a white person, right? He was considered black, why? Well, it's not how he looked, it's because he had a, a grandparent of African descent. It was his great-grandparent, correct, if I remember from That's the book. Right. Yeah. That's right. Yes, yes, his great-grandparents. So he, he, he had the black essence inside of him, even though he, he looked very European. Similarly, why did the Nazis make Jews wear yellow stars? Well, because they couldn't tell they were Jews right. otherwise. Right. So, and that's why ancestry is so terribly important in, in racial ideology. Now, it's very important to say something about this here, which is scientifically speaking, race is nonsense. We've known that for a long time. Right. But it's, it's powerfully embedded in our way of thinking and in our, 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 our culture. Yeah. One of the, uh, uh, examples in your book of people who were standing up um, 
for African Americans in our country, and had made this uh, made a, a point to say that when they did an autopsy, once you get past the very outer layer, um, virtually indistinguishable, there is no difference on the inside. And it reminds me of that meme where, you know, the the brown egg and the white egg, and they crack it and they say racism solved. Um, yeah. It's the same. The essence is really ultimately the same, and race is a, a, a construct. Yeah, yeah. And I, w I would add a fiction. So most of the human variation is everywhere. It's not that we have this race and that race, and a whole lot of variation separates them. Most, up to 97%, some of the estimates are, of human variation is everywhere. Yeah, and ultimately we are all the same. Um, email, how does uh, social class play into dehumanization? Uh, are there any examples like of social classes or, or is it mostly race? Well, the, there's not a real clean division between those two things. So for instance, you can look at 19th century British literature talking about the Cockney race. Cockneys are working class people in East London. Right, so in, in order to, to see how these concepts bleed into each other, ethnicity too, ethnicity bleeds into race. They're formally different. I mean, ethnicity is about a culture, but they bleed into one another. Even religious categories do. Muslim, the category Muslim is treated racially very often in the United States. So we have to ask ourselves, What's going on with race? Like, what is it to think of others as belonging to a race? And I think there are three components to this. Uh, one is these others are fundamentally different from us. And that can't be modified. That's permanent. That's a life sentence. They are inferior to us, whoever us happens to be. And that condition, that status is transmitted biologically, usually by descent. But there are a few exceptions to that historically. So for instance, uh, some of the Nazis thought that if a, an Aryan woman had sex with a Jewish man, all of her future children would be Jewish hmm. because that Jewish essence has gotten into her. It would seep into her blood, into her body, That's into right. her soul. That's right. And when the American Red Cross started accepting donations of blood from African-Americans, they segregated the blood supplies because there were white soldiers dying uh, during World War II who did not want black blood. There is no such thing as black blood, but they thought it was because of this crazy essentialistic thinking that would contaminate them, you see. You don't want to catch it. It's madness. Oh, that is, uh, yeah, that chapter, I mean, that part in the book where they talked about, I mean, that was not that long ago where... No, no, the, lots of this stuff is in living memory. Yeah, well, people who are alive today were, had segregated blood. Um, mm -hmm. All right, let's go. We'll take one more phone call. Uh, Bill in Anchorage, go ahead, you're on line one. Years ago, I was listening to the radio, and a skinhead who used to be in a you know skinhead gang 
went to a meeting one night and said, hey, suppose all the people in the world that we were opposed to died tonight and woke up tomorrow morning, what would we do? There was no answer. He <laughs> says, I know what we'd do. We'd start picking on each other. And that, that kind of changed my theory about, you know, like I say, if you're going to get revenge, dig two graves. I'll take it off the air. Bye. Thanks. Thank you. Right. So there's a lot of wisdom in that because you see, race, race is manufactured, right? Uh -huh. People are ex extruded from the us. But the good thing is, of course, they can be included in the us. It can work both ways. All right. I'm going to burn through a couple more emails. Um, uh, one of the, uh, our listeners emailed in. She said she's enjoying the show. Just wanted to point out this is, in essence, critical race theory, which is just telling the truth about how things are. Curious what David thinks on that topic. Well, uh, I'll, I'll say I've, I study race. Um, the bookshelf to my right has a couple thousand books about race and genocide and, and other um, unpleasant topics. Uh, but I've never really studied critical race theory. Um, it's obviously closely related, however. And yes, I, so this is an opportunity to say that these forces, these forces that in the past in this country fomented unbelievable atrocities are still active. They're active in the the crazy and I think fundamentally dishonest campaign against critical race theory, because these people don't have a clue what it is, um, in, in the efforts to, to ban books. This stuff is still there. It's deeply embedded. These things do not go away easily. These ideologies that you talk about exactly. in the book and how they keep coming back. and They're incredibly persistent. Yeah, yeah, they just sort of hard work to 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 try and get rid of these things or just to constrain them, to keep them from harming people. OK, we are uh, quickly running out of time. Another question from a comment is NATO. And this is a monster for being a voyeur here. And is the Ukrainian situation? Uh, is it a, a situation of dehumanization or is it something different? It, it had, certainly has dehumanizing components. First of all, the monster thing, the monsters aren't real, right? When we start talking about monsters, we are dehumanizing. And that's how easy it is, Right. you see. Now, uh, look, we, we and many others live in secular societies. Go back 500 years and, and people who were dehumanized were literally described as demonic and monstrous. Now it's kind of hard to do that, but we have our equivalents. And one of the equivalents in Eastern Europe is Nazi. Nazi does the same job as demon did in the Middle Ages. So Putin's characterization of this horrible, horrible war as a process of denazification is, a, is in my opinion, dehumanizing. There's a Jewish leader in yes, a Jewish leader, descendant of victims of the Holocaust. And he's put in the position by, the, by Putin's ideology as Nazi in chief. 
Because it's simply correct. simply that statement, the denazification, brings up all the images of the horrific acts against the Jews and the Nazis. It's sort of, you point out in the book, it's been flipped um, from, yeah, yeah. And, and Nazi has yeah. taken over this demon, evil, uh, the worst of the worst sort of place. Yeah, and yeah, you have to bear in mind that the the Russians or the Soviets bore the brunt of, of of Germany's war of aggression. They lost twenty seven million people. So Nazi is just synonymous with essential demonic, monstrous evil. All right, um, Mona gives. Uh... A really good a good idea for sort of a, a small protest is uh, human race. So she says we should just write in human on all the forms that ask for race. I do that. You do that. <laughs> and I agree. I think we should all resist this toxic ideology. Of compartmentalizing ourselves and classifying yeah. ourselves based on That's right. these these made up sort of things. Yeah, and that's not to say that, that's not to deny racial injustice. Right. Right? People have been imagined to be members of different races and brutalized. But to, to simply to characterize them racially is another injustice and another brutalization. Right, so to say that race is made up does not dismiss um, the injustices that have been done in that name. Absolutely not. Right. Okay. Uh, I have a ton of emails here. Obviously, lots of people were very interested in today's topic. I am sorry that I'm not going to be able to get through them, um, but I will forward them to you, David, and perhaps you can uh, and respond. Um, last Happy thoughts to- in 15 seconds. Last thoughts. Um, look. We're, we're confronting some very challenging times with uh, climate change. Climate change is going to produce massive social disruptions and massive movements of population. It's a perfect storm for the worst kinds of things that human beings have done to one another. All right. We I got to got to stop you because I only got a few seconds, but um, I appreciate your time. My thanks to uh, my producer, Adeline Baxter, and to auto engineer Tobin Shelby. For all of us at Line One, thanks for taking the time to join us today. Till next time, I'm Prentice Pemberton. Have a great day, Alaska. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the hosts and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.